Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. We want to talk about this morning as we dig into Jonah. Um, Proverbs 4, uh, verse 23 in the Amplified, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. If everything flows from our hearts, then we have to unclog the pathways, the arteries that go into our hearts. And whatever it is that's clogging it, the the desires, the love, the other things that are not of God that are clogging it, we've got to learn how to unclog those things so that we can experience it. And what is it it that clogs the heart? And I think uh, the the person, his name is Ken Sand, the pastor, um, in the U.S., this is what he talks about. He says, most of us, and he talks about idols. Most of us think of an idol as a statue of wood, stone, or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on that motivates us, that masters us, and rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it is something we love and pursue more than God. This is what he says are the things that are clogging up our hearts. These idols that are things that motivate us, master us, and rule us that are not from God. And and if we're honest with ourselves, idols are a lot more commonplace in our lives than we think. They're a lot more pervasive in our lives than we think. Usually when we think of an idol, at least for me, because I think of an American idol, right? It's just like that song person. Sometimes we idolize these people, but it's not just those people that we idolize, but it's anything, anything in our lives, our careers, our jobs, our family, our finances, our future, our grades, you name it. Those are the things that if you're not careful, that they will block us from connecting with God. So if there's one thing I want us to remember for this morning, it's that God repeatedly expels idols in our heart so that our relationship with Him can restart. God repeatedly expels idols in our heart so that our relationship with Him can restart. Let's look at Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look at, again, verse 17 in chapter 1 all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 6a. And the first thing I want to talk about, we have two points today. The first thing is that God exposes our idols. God exposes our idols. If, if you want to clear that drain, you've got to look at the, 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 the tangled hair. It's not, well, I sh- maybe I shouldn't say that because hair is created in the image of God, right? <laughs> but when it's in that drain, it gets really yucky, right? <laughs> because all this other stuff that's compiled up against it. But we have to be able to expose, God has to expose those idols. So let's read Jonah. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 6, 8. Hopefully you've turned it to by now, or if you need to, download them all that. You could follow along with the notes uh, on that notes section. So chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. If we're to recognize that our relationship with God is off, then God has to expose our idols. God has to clean it out. God has to clear it out. And sometimes our idols is a matter of perspective. Uh, many of us, we, um, we know this passage really, really well. Uh, again, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us, we learned about Jonah in Sunday school or in youth group? We were like, Jonah and the great whale, the big fish. You know, and we always recognize, like, God saved Jonah because of this great fish. And you realize when you actually read this passage, it's just one verse. <laughs> you make a whole Sunday school lesson out of one verse. But we missed the whole prayer that Jonah prays during this whole section. And it's what um, a lot of commentators call a thanksgiving psalm. Because it's written in a, in a poetic format. And in a thanksgiving psalm, what someone typically does is he describes his his, uh, his calamity. He describes the difficulty that he's going through. And then he shows how God redeems him. But it's interesting that, you know, when we look at Psalms, when we look at uh, the words that are written in Scripture, it doesn't mean the perspective's always on point. It doesn't mean the perspective's always a godly perspective. And that's what we want to look critically at Jonah, the words that he prays to God, and to see if his perspective can reveal something about the idols that are clogging his heart and that's separating him from God. So let's look at that. I'm going to start in verse 3 and, and see what Jonah's perspective of what happened is actually accurate. So first thing that we notice in verse 3 is that Jonah says that God cast him into the sea. Jonah said that God cast him into the sea, right? It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So he's beginning to say, God, you did this to me. I, you, you cast me into the sea. You did this. Second thing that he says of his perspective of what happened, Jonah says he was being driven away from God's presence. That's verse 4. He says, I am driven away from whom? Your sight by someone else. Yet I shall look. So, hey, God, I'm looking back at you, but you're the one who's driving me away. So he's saying, you drove me away. And the third thing that he does, he says, Jonah says he's about to die. Verse 5. He says, the waters closed in. And who are the waters from? It was from God. About to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weaves were wrapped around my head. Where did the weeds come from? Well, God. <laughs> he's king of all creation. The question is, now we looked at some of us. We were here this past week. And some of us remember that last week we talked about how God is persistently finding a way, though we constantly turning away. And as you remember that and you begin to remember the passage from chapter 1, you realize, hey, is that what really happened? Did that actually, is Jonah's perspective the way that things actually worked out in that account? And we realize maybe that didn't actually happen. Maybe Jonah's perspective is skewed, clogged, or warped by the idols or something that's going on in his heart. So what actually happened? Let's look at it. And we're going to parallel. I'm going to use that same number 1, 2, and 3, those verses. Did God really cast Jonah into the sea? Yes or no? Some of us are not sure. Okay, Jonah 1, verse 12 through 15. In verse 12, he says, He said to them, and this is Jonah speaking, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And then in verse 15, So they, the sailors, 
picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So who hurled Jonah into the sea? The sailors. <laughs> well, it was himself, right? He said, hurl me into the sea. It's my fault. And then, of course, the backstory is they were like, whose God do you serve? You know, whose fault is this? Jonah didn't have to say, hurl me into the sea. He said, I'm just going to go back to sleep. I don't care about you guys. But he, he realized, no, hurl me into the sea. It's my responsibility. So the second question, did God really drive Jonah from his presence? Verse 4, did he? Hopefully you're catching on now. <laughs> the answer is no. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3 and 10. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Who fled? Jonah. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And then we jump to verse 10. Then the men, this is now when he's on the boat, when they're like in the storm. Then the sailors, the men, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah says, verse 4, Now I am being driven away from your presence. But what actually happened? Jonah was the one who was fleeing from God's presence. Jonah was the one who was running away. And not only did Jonah know that, all the sailors knew that. All the sailors knew that. Third one, did God really take Jonah's life? Chapter 1, verse 17, which we just read, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is our Sunday school answer. No, God saved Jonah, and this is God's grace, and you know, he has now redeemed us like Jesus, right? <laughs> Something like that. No, God did not kill Jonah. He did not totally consume him. In fact, God was the one who appointed a great fish in order to save him. And what do we notice is a common phrase or common theme out of all these three things that Jonah has this perspective in this psalm. He says, God, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you, you drove me away from your presence, but it was actually Jonah who did that. You know, you're the one who caused me to be in this situation, but it was really the one, Jonah, who threw himself or said, you throw me into the sea. And what, is it, what do we realize is going on in his mind? Is he's blaming God. He's assigning blame. He's, he's giving other reasons. He's looking to other things in order to say, God, you're the reason. God, this is the reason. It's not me. It's you. It's like a breakup story. <laughs> it's not me. It's you. But it really should be. It's not you. It's me. Right? But he blames God in this situation. And I think this is, this, is the, this is the issue with so many of us. We have a false view of God. And we have so many idols that are going on in our hearts. So what do we do? When, when something goes wrong in our lives, what do we do? We do not blame the idol or that thing that we're looking to for satisfaction. We don't blame that. Like, again, how many of us, we've looked for a job, we, we applied for that company or that dream thing that we've always longed for, we don't get it, we're stuck without an internship, we're scrambling because we have nothing to do for the summer, or we don't have a job to pay our rent week to week or month to month. Do we blame that company that didn't hire us? I mean, some of us are like, wow, that company is so bad. I was so like, qualified. Man, they, they didn't get me. No, <laughs> right? We blame the interviewer. We blame our resume. We blame all these other things. Oh, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or I didn't have you know, X, Y, and Z. 
And I would contend to say, we don't even blame ourselves. And someone's like, no, I do blame myself because I'm, man, I'm so unqualified. No, you're blaming what you cannot do, but actually you're still believing in the career that's best for you. You're still holding on to believing that career is going to satisfy you, believing that job is exactly what's, what you need in order to live a fulfilling life. So you don't really blame yourself because the issue is that you're still finding hope and satisfaction in that job or career. You're just blaming your inadequacy in order to get there. Do you see the difference? And when you see your inadequacy, when things don't go your way, what do you ultimately end up blaming at the bottom line? You end up blaming God. You go to all these interviews, you, you study super hard for your grades, you look at your grades, I don't know if your grades have come out yet, no? And you're like, OMG, I cannot, I want to hide on June 5th or whatever that date is going to be that your grades are released. No, I don't want to see it because I know what's going to happen if I blah, blah, blah. And then what ends up happening is that instead of taking it in stride, and saying, God, you know, I surrender this to you. What do we do? We blame God. God, it was because that life group I went to. God, it was because I spent too much time in church. God, it was because blah, X, Y, and Z. You can put whatever spiritual answer you want in there. And it's so ironic, right? It's so ironic that an idolatry is anything that you worship, anything that you're satisfied by, anything that you look toward fulfillment, which ends up being your God, so you're worshiping this God, your God of grades, your God of finances, your God of future, your God of your job. But over here, you're blaming God, the king of heaven and earth. Is that not ironic? Is that not duplicitous? That here you are worshiping this false God, and then you end up blaming the true God, king of heaven and earth. That's the wickedness of idolatry. That's the duplicitousness of idolatry. That's, that's the clogged arteries in our hearts that we can't think straight, that we can't logically reason well or understand what we're doing and we just end up blaming, we just end up getting bitter and no wonder our relationship with God is stuck. No wonder we feel far from Him. No wonder. Why? It's because we're blaming Him for everything. What were Jonah's idols? Jonah wanted control because he saw God as a strict master. Why? He wanted control of his life. He wanted control to, to go where he wanted to go. And he, he wanted control to be able to say, I, you can throw me into the sea, but he turns back the next time and in a, some, in a weird, illogical way says, no, God, you're the one who threw me in the sea. I wasn't. So he's trying to hold on control when he's really out of control. And what is the only conclusion? The only way you can blame God is what? If he believes that God is what? Strict, strict master, someone who forces my hand. Some of us, we struggle with this a lot. We feel like, God, man, you, you're forcing me to do all these things. When really, your idols control, you're trying to do everything on your own. And every time God is calling you to do, you, you fight against it. You fight against it because you're like, God is this angry boss. It's worse than my boss right now. He's forcing me to do all these things. OTing in church all the time. Gosh, life always goes so long. So much OT, they should pay me for this. (laughs) 
Jonah wanted acceptance. He saw God as an absent father. He fleed from God's presence. Why? Because God said, go preach to the Ninevites. Jonah's like, I don't want to do that. What is Jonah really saying? I want you to be with me, but I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want you to accept me just for who I am and whatever I want to do. If you don't accept me on that term, I'm going to run away from you. Isn't that how many of us are with our parents, with our absent fathers or mothers? That when they tell us to do something that we want to do, everything's good, right? We're all chummy. We have this great relationship. As soon as they give us some critical feedback, as soon as they tell us to do something that we don't want to do, what do we do? We run away. We're out of there. Someone you blame, if you blame someone for something that you don't want to do or because they don't accept you, do you want to be in their presence? No way. You don't want to be in the same room. You don't want to be anywhere near that person. I bet some of you are here in Hong Kong. You don't want to go back. Why? Because you don't want to face your parents. Because you blame them. You don't want to face the things that they've told you over and over and over again. Because you long for an acceptance that is conditioned only on the things that you want. And the sad part is we transfer that to God. Like, God... I will serve you if you accept me for the things that I like to do. For the lifestyle that I want to live. For the addictions and habits and bondage that I like to prefer to indulge myself in. And no wonder you feel far from God. Because every time you go into those things, that addictive behavior, that bondage, what happens? You feel far from God because He does not like that thing that you do. And when you blame Him for that, what do you do? You run away. No wonder you feel far from him. Jonah wanted comfort. He wanted life on his own terms. He saw God as a vindictive judge. He wanted to sleep in the boat forever, far away from God as he possibly could. He just wanted to enjoy and just be who he was, be the man, the prophet that was appointed, but not have to do the things that God wanted him to do. He wanted to sleep, but the other people had to wake him up He's like, God, I just want to be comfortable, but you're calling me to do all this stuff, and it's not fair that now you're punishing for it. And some of us, we're so afraid of punishment. We're so afraid of, like, uncomfortableness. And, and the thing is, so many of us, we, we forget that God is a loving Father who disciplines His children. And that sometimes when we're uncomfortable, it's actually God trying to get our attention to bring us back to Him. But instead, what do we do? We run the other way. I mean, I just wanted to give us some other examples because some of you are like, oh, this is just Jonah. Jonah's a really whack prophet. <laughs> like, of all the prophets of the Bible, I don't want to follow Jonah. <laughs> this, this, this weird guy. No, this is, this is all throughout the Bible. This is our story. It's not just Jonah. It's all throughout the Bible, and this is our story. Who else, or what, who else did not have a relationship with God because they desired other things? Adam and Eve. What, were they, what happened to them? They were banished from the Garden of Eden, Eden because what? They desired to be like God. They didn't want to be with God. They desired to be like God. So they, they idolized themselves. They idolized the fruit. So they were banished. Who else? Wandering Israelites, remember, in the, in the wilderness, they had the opportunity to go to the promised land. They didn't have to wander for 40 years. They could have been there just in less than a year. And what ended up happening is after they said, no, we want to go back to Egypt, that's what they desired 
Then they try to go back in to the promised land, and then they got defeated. Why? Because they desired to go back to Egypt. Their desire was not God. The kingdom of Israel, after everything settled, and you had King David and Solomon and all these other kings, what happened? They were exiled to where? To Babylon. Again, away from the presence of God. Because what? They desired the idols of the four nations. Because they were worshiping the Baals, the Asterisks, all these other gods that the inhabitants of the land had worshipped. My question is, how many of us, we have this view of God? How many of us, we are clogged, unhappy, dissatisfied, feel distant, feel stuck, but we don't want to do anything about it. And God is trying to expose our idols. He's trying to reveal it. He's trying to show it to us because he cares for us. He wants us to restore a relationship, but we cannot get there unless we come face to face with the reality of who it is or what it is that we're actually worshiping. I, um, I, 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 I am, I don't know if I could say that, the, the king of idol idolatry. Like, there's so many, the more I get older, the more I realize there's so many idols in my heart. And, like, even, uh, I think it was back in uh, 2019, uh, this was when um, I, this was my second year, second year of being a pastor, so I was kind of getting the hang of it, and I was, you know, excited to preach and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, there was a summer back in 2019 when uh, Pastor Seth, you know, he was kind of out for a couple times. So I was really excited to preach. I got to preach a good number of times. But when you preach week to week, it gets tiring and, you know, it gets exhausting. So I was preaching for a good two months or so. Pastor Seth finally came back. I was so excited that September. I was like, Lord, I get to rest. And then what ended up happening was uh, he ended up taking a sabbatical. And, <laughs> and uh, I was like, Oh, but the, the, I was really thankful because he was asking me and some of the other ET guys, like, oh, when would be best in order for me to take a sabbatical? Because he, he understands, like, I was still working full-time at the time, and there were so many other things going on. And I was like, oh, maybe, like, December and January would be really good because, like, you know, life groups are winding down, there's a break, and so I could just focus on sermon prep, and I don't have to worry about all the other stuff. And so I was like, okay, here we go, sabbatical, and I'm going to get ready, I'm going to go. And then what ended up happening in end of November 2019. Do you even remember? Yeah. yeah. Protests. CUHK, Poly U. Where were we meeting in that time? The canteen in Poly U. And what happened? It closed down. And so here I was leading the church, and I'm like, Saturday night, 11 p.m., we don't have anywhere to meet. OMG. And I'm like preparing a sermon. Like, I don't know what to do. And then that only happened one time. It happened like three or four times. And those of you who were there at that time, remember, we jumped around for like four or five different venues within like two months. And I was like, Lord, when is this going to end? I was like, Pastor, where are you? Like, can you not help at all? Right? And then not only that, we had to give statements on the protest. Like, what are our guidelines for gathering and commuting? MTR was closing down. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And then what happened in January 2009, uh, 2020? COVID. And I'm like, what? Like, are you serious? I was like, of all the times that I could have picked for peace to go on sabbatical, it had to be this time. And I was like, oh man, like all these decisions. And I was like, I'm going to make a statement. And you know, there's people like, you know, you're not conservative enough. And other people are like, why are you so scared? And I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing I could do that will make everyone happy. And I was like dying inside. And I just remember sitting there and I was like complaining to my wife. And if you wanted to know the details, you can ask her. But man, I was in such a bad place. Like complaining up the wall. Like complaining about our church. Complaining about God. 
I was complaining about Pastor Seth, like, why is he not there? You know, <laughs> the time that I needed him. And uh, I was just like, God, like, what the heck? Why is this going on? And I remember, like, my instinct. And, like, this was a, one of the, I think, of all the seasons of my life since I've been in Hong Kong, this was probably the darkest season of my life where I felt the furthest from God. And that was in that moment where it was so dark. That was the time where I, I had these crazy thoughts, these crazy thoughts. And, I, again, like, you can ask my wife. I'm not making this up. There were times where I'm like, hey, should we just, like, book some flights, go to Hong Kong airport and just fly back to the U.S. right now? Like, right now, and just leave. I don't care, you know? And I was like, literally, I was like, I'm like Jonah, you know? I'm like, Hong Kong is my Nineveh, and I'm trying to run away to Tarshish, you know? And I'm like, what is going on with my life? And then she was like, go take a walk, you know? Like, go. I was like, oh. And I was like, man, like, how did I get here? Like, what happened? And, and I realized it was so easy for my heart to blame all of the circumstances. It was so easy for me to blame people, to blame, you know, the things, God, the, the venues, the protests, COVID, all that kind of stuff. But I realized what was issue in my heart was I was not in control. And I really wanted to be in control. And because I was so out of control that I just felt like I had to do something in order to get control back in my life. And I think that I realized like that's one of the deep idols in my heart. Ever since I was young, like, I just always felt like I did well. And the more effort I put into my life, into the things that I did, the more I could results I could get. But the problem with my life at that time in December was like nothing I put in effort was getting the results that I wanted. And I began to then all those things started coming out. Bitterness against God, running away from God, blaming other people. And, and I'm sharing this, and I'm wondering how many of us, maybe not in that dramatic sense, like you want to run away from home. Maybe, maybe some of you are like that. I'm wondering how many of us, we blame, we run away, we avoid, we get bitter, and we do all these things, not realizing that it's not the circumstances, it's not God, it's not other people, it's our hearts, it's the idols that are deep inside that we're holding on to something. It could be control. It could be approval. It could be comfort. It could be power. It could be any relationships, family, you name it, whatever, finances, security, anything that you're holding on to that's an idol that you want because you're not getting it. That your heart is now screaming, unclog me. And all you can do is then blame God because you got nothing else. And it, no wonder, the Bible talks about this. When we are in idolatry, that's sin. Ten Commandments, the first one, talks about, right, we shall have no other gods aside from God. That's idolatry. If we have any other guy, God aside from God, right, that's idolatry. That's sin. What does sin lead to? To death. And I would say many of us are spiritually dead right now, separated from God, not in a relationship with God, because there's so many idols in our heart that we don't even know about. Tim Keller, there's a book called Counterfeit God. I think some of you really need to read this because he talks about how the way that we see Christian life oftentimes is so much in this like cross, Jesus, penalty of sin, which is very biblical, very gospel-centered, but we miss it because we only see sin as like these really bad things that we do as that sin I committed, like, oh man, I lied, or I committed adultery, or blah, 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 which is, again, true. 
But we miss 99% of all the other sins that we commit in our hearts and our minds every single day because we do not see sin as idolatry. And I'm going to read this as a little bit longer quote. It's pieced together from different parts in that book, Counterfeit Gods. But I just want us to listen because I feel like this will really speak to some of us. This is what he says. He says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Some of us, we're there to the point where you're going to get down this road where you're going to feel depressed and even suicidal. And I'm not surprised because you're not getting the things that you want. And when you don't get the things that you want, what do you feel? What's the point of life? Why am I here? Why should I be here if I can't get anything that I want? I felt that way before. But it's because we have, again, I'm not discounting there's some neurological stuff, biological stuff going in our minds for some of us that need to be treated. But for many of us, it's an idle issue in our hearts and our minds. He continues on. He says, counterfeit gods come in structures. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives. Some people are strongly motivated by influence and power, while others are motivated by approval or appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort than, more than anything else. Some of you. Others want security and the control of their environment. Again, many of us. People with a deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They'll gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. How many of us are like this? How many of us, we're constantly pleasing people. We're constantly trying to gain control. We're constantly trying to hold on to power. And we're willing to give up these other things just so that we can get that. Each idol, power, approval, comfort, or control generates a different set of fears and hopes. Surface idols, so he differentiates deep idols versus surface idols, so he just uses that terminology. Surface idols are like things like money, spouse, children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We're often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational influences. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life, and such people usually don't spend much money, and they live very modestly. I think he's speaking to some of us that are very stingy. They keep it all safely saved and invested so that they can feel completely safe in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol. And yet because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. The people using money to search a deep idol of control will often feel superior to others and use money to obtain power or social approval. In every case, money idolatry slaves and distorts lives. There's one more part, but wow, that, I don't know. I, when I read that, I was like, this is so true. And he's just talking about money. This is just money. This is, he didn't even talk about relationships. He didn't talk about all these other things. This is just money. And like how sinister... An idol can be and control us in ways that we didn't even realize. No wonder some of us are so stingy with our money. No, one, no wonder so many of us are so lavish in the way that we spend. Neither of which are God-honoring and holy. 
We, talk, we, we give the giving passage every single Sunday. And some of it, the reason why it's not speaking to us is because there's this deep idol in our heart that we've never uncovered before. The last part of this quote, he says, No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. When you finally realize this, there are four things you can do. Number one, you can blame the things that are disappointing you. We saw that. And try to move on to better ones. That's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. No wonder so many of us are in that. Number two, you can blame yourself and beat yourself. That's the way of self-loathing and shame. Some of us, were so insecure and we get so inward that we blame ourselves and then we beat ourselves up. And then we somehow think that the more we beat ourselves up, the more that God will love you. No, he's not. He's going to love you the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you somehow think that by like, you know, in a weird aesthetic way, right? By like beating yourself, coming more contritely before God and feeling more bad about yourself, that that's going to make you more worthy before God. No, it's not. And you just get into the self-pity cycle over and over again. Thirdly, you can, blame your, uh, sorry, you can blame the world. That's how you get hard, cynical, empty. So many of us are jaded. We blame the church. Like, oh, that's, well, this is, every church sucks, so why, why should I participate? Like, oh, I've been to enough churches. Like, you might as well not go to any church. I've been to Life Group for the past four years. My heart is hard. I know how Life Group goes. I know what passage they study in the first Life Group. <laughs> I know what leaders got to say. And then you, you get hard and you can't really experience the joy of community. Why? Because you're jaded. Because you're blaming the world. Or, fourthly, you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. I'm wondering how many of us we fall into every single one of these categories. At least one, if not many others. And the reason why we're stuck our relationship with God is not flowing. We feel bitter. We run away. We fall into all these things. It's because we're locked into these idols, which God is so desperately trying to get our attention. He's trying to bring circumstances. He's trying to bring people. He's trying to bring people's Bible verses, you know, like that one random big red moon. He's trying to speak to you through that. And you're like, wow, the glory of God. He's trying to speak to you through that. And we are not responding. We're not realizing that he's trying to unearth these things. And I'm wondering if we need to really sit down and take a step back and say, God, what are the idols that are in my heart? What are the idols in my heart? Jonah, I mean, through the prayer, right, you begin to see some of the idols that were in his heart. And we'll see how God deals with him in the second part. So the first point was that God exposes our idols. The second point is that God expels our idols. God expels our idols. Let's continue on to read uh, verse 6b through verse 8. It says this, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, when my life was fading away. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We talk about the gospel expelling our idols. We look at Jonah's life. And we see a couple things happen, right? So the first thing that we see in the end of verse 6, we see that Jonah was on the brink of death. 
And then God, he brings Jonah up from the pit back to life. How does he do that? Through the fish or the whale, whatever you want to call it. And then Jonah prays and he turns his prayer to his holy temple. Why is this significant? What's the significance of the temple? Well, back in uh, the kingdom of the Jews, um, when the Israelites were a nation, the, the temple was built by, you know, David wanted to build it, but Solomon was, was the one who actually built it. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, it was where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. So for the Jew, for the Israelites, everything was about the temple. Presence of God, worship of God, connecting with God, being in fellowship with God. It was all surrounded around the temple. If you were close, you got to be with the temple. That's why everything in, in the religious sphere of their lives would happen inside the temple. And so, and every single Jew, and not everyone lived in Jerusalem, but every Jew would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There were a lot of feasts and festivals they would go to in order to be there at the temple, to be, why? With God. I mean, sorry, this is a side note just coming to mind, but if you read so many of the Psalms, especially like the later Psalms, 100 on to 140, 50, so there's these Psalms called Song of Ascents. And those Psalms are Jews or Israelites on their pilgrimage, on the road to Jerusalem. And if you read some of those Psalms, it's really moving. They're like rejoicing. They're like, oh, how I, how I long to be in Jerusalem. How I long, I, I can't wait to be in the presence of God. That was how much they desired it. That was the view of the Israelites to the temple. And uh, we see this when, when uh, Solomon dedicates the temple. And this is why praying to the temple was so significant. Verse, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30. And this is Solomon's prayer to God. He says, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, this place being the temple, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear forgive. And he says that about seven times. It's a long prayer. If you ever read it, full, all of chapter 8, the long prayer, over and over again, he says, whenever Israel sins, they do something wrong, they fall away, they run away, they get defeated, something bad happens, and then when they turn, they pray toward this place, then listen, God, in your dwelling place, yes, your dwelling place is in heaven, but you're inhabiting this temple, so when we pray to your temple, then listen, hear, and what? Forgive. Forgive. That means their eyes, their hearts are turned back to God. There's a physical aspect of that. They're physically turned back to Jerusalem, to the temple when they're praying. And why? Because that was their way of saying, I'm turning away from these idols, from these things that I idolize, and I'm turning back to God. I'm fastening my eyes back to God. As Christians, we're like, oh, I don't have a temple. Like, which way is Jerusalem? I don't know. Like, we don't pray to Jerusalem. But who do we pray to? What do we do when we pray? What are we looking to? We're looking to Jesus. We're looking to Christ because Christ is our temple today. Christ is the one that we look to. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1b to 2, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What is that weight? It's a clog. What is that sin? It's an idol. And let us what? Run with endurance. It's flowing. Endurance, the race that is set before us, looking where? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What do we need to do? We have to look. We have to turn our ways away from idols. We have to look to Jesus. We have to look to him, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
In the, I want to read it from a couple of different translations. The NIV, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I don't know how many of you fix your eyes on something. Whether it's like you're really hungry and you see that like really good restaurant. And you're like, your eyes are just glued to that. I'm just thinking about hamburgers right now because I'm hungry. Right? <laughs> you're like, wow, that looks so good. You're fixing your eyes on that. The NLT says, keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's not just a glance. It's not just a one-time look. Right? You're keeping, you're focused. And even as you're walking by, you're like, something gets your attention. You're like, whoa, that is awesome. It's, it's amazing. It's stunning. Like when you go to a museum, you look at a, a gorgeous piece of art. You don't just kind of like walk through the, you don't run through the museum. Oh, I, I saw all the art. Oh, that's good. Awesome. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, you, you stand there. You keep staring at it for a long period, and the longer you stare at it, what happens? The more beautiful it looks. You're like, whoa, how awesome is that painting? And to keep our eyes on Jesus. The NASB, it says, looking only at Jesus. Looking only at Jesus. It's not just looking at Jesus and then looking at something else and looking at something else and coming back to Jesus later. No, the only thing that we ought to look at is Jesus. So many of us, our eyes are on so many different things, so many idols, so many other things that we think will fulfill us or satisfy us, but it's only Jesus that will do that. And then the Amplified says, looking away from all that will distract us. Man, I, I feel like there's so many distractions in our world today. Instagram, some of you like got your SIM card out so you can get TikTok back again. Uh, what's the, what is the latest distraction? Anything? Clubhouse? I, I don't know what, I'm... Yeah, I'm not in with the crowd anymore. So, so I don't know what the latest distraction is. For me, the distraction is BBC News. You know, like, I don't know why, but that's just for me. Right? Uh, oh, cryptocurrency. Ah, investments. Stock market. Is it green or is it red? Did the currency go up or did it go down? Shoot, do I have to trade now? Oh, man, I missed it. Crap. It's distracting you. What? Well, okay, I mean... Again, don't raise your hand. I wonder how many of us are into that and how much, you, how much time you spend researching, learning about stock market, investments, crypto, whatever. If you put that amount of time into reading the Bible, if you spend that amount of time praying, man, I just go home now and then we're done. <laughs> yeah, looking away from all that will distract us, focusing our eyes on Jesus. I feel like so many of us, we're just so focused on so many other things, fixing our eyes on other things, keeping our eyes on other things that causes us to keep on turning to these idols. But there presents a problem, Right? Like so many of us, I believe that we've probably preached this verse before, we've heard this before, we've been encouraged to do this before. Like go back, go back to your prayer time, go back and do your soap, go back to life group, you know, connect with God, spend time with God personally, do your Sabbath. All you self-sufficient people have heard that so many times. Do your Sabbath, rest, spend time with God. You're like, yeah, I got to do it. And the next week you're like, oh, I didn't have enough time. Why? We keep on going back to the same thing over and over, and we can't. That's the problem is we can't. We cannot. We're unable. We're so tied to our idols. We're so fixed on those things that are not Jesus. 
And that's the bad news that Jonah says this in verse 8. Remember in the, in the translation we're reading in the ESV, it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope on steadfast love. That's us. We can't. We're stuck. The NLT says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. That's what we're doing. Every single day, no matter how hard we try, we're trying over and over again, and we keep on doing that. NIV says, those who cling to what? Worthless idols turn away from what? God's love for them. That's what we're doing every single day. And you're like, God, this should break my heart. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And then we get into the cycle of being more in desperation and more just disappointment in the message version. You got to read it in the yellow together. It says, those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from what? Their only true love. Some of us, we got baptized recently. And it's only been a couple months. Already, we're walking away from our only true love. We, we, I don't know if you remember standing, yourself standing right there, giving that testimony, how good God was to you, and look at where you're at right now. And the rest of you who I'm not picking on right now, you got baptized at some point as well. And if you haven't got baptized, get baptized, right? <laughs> but so many of us, we got baptized a year ago, two years, five years ago. Do you remember the testimony that you shared? Do you remember the way that God captured your heart and everything was for God? And yet you've forgotten. You've forgotten your first love. You strayed away from your only true love. And I think the sad part is that we try to come back to God on our own strength by doing more things, by trying to be more obedient. But what ends up happening as we become Pharisees, legalists, judgmental. There's only two options that happens, right? We try harder, and, and either we get really proud, because like, wow, yeah, I'm doing my soap. Six days in a row, baby, yes. <laughs> and then you look at your other WhatsApp group with your LCGs, like, what are you doing? Are you, only, you, you skipped a day. What's wrong with you, man? Five days? What is that? Come on. And then you look at the other person who got seven days, and you're like, oh, my God, I suck, like... <laughs> oh, I can't do this, right? And so either you get super proud and judgmental or what? You get insecure and discouraged. Why? Because all we know is just trying harder that produces what? Moralists, legalists, people that think that we can somehow come to God by ourselves. Some of us we look to like, oh yeah, I memorized the Alive curriculum and I know everything, therefore I'm a good Christian. Or I, I learned this new tool and blah, 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 and I could do all this great stuff. Look at how great I am. Or I go to life group every single day. I'm part of Salt Community. Look at me. I signed up this summer. I'm ready to get discipled. Make disciples. And then later this summer, you're going to be like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I don't know how to make disciples. I don't know what a disciple is. Or you get really proud. And you're like, hey, look at all the disciples I'm making. You better call me discipler because you're my disciplee. <laughs> Or others of us, we don't try harder, but we just kind of go with whatever emotions feel that moment. That's the way that we connect with God. Like, oh, I don't feel God right now, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm not in it right now, so yeah, I'm just, whenever, whenever I feel it, I just, I just need that retreat. I'm going to wait till that comes by, and then that's when I'm going to connect with God. And then you get that high, but you know how, how much that, ha- that high, it, it helps you? Helps you for like that, that day, that week, 
And then you go back to what? The same old person that you always are. So the only way that God wants to reestablish a relationship with is not by us doing more. It's not by us giving to our emotions and not by us doing all these things. It's by God, His gospel being declared and proclaimed into our hearts. I know you wish I had a, a different solution. You're like, what's the secret? It's the gospel. There's nothing else. There's nothing else than the good news of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God coming, who's come in creation, who saved us from our fall and our sin, who redeemed us because we ought to be punished and now is restoring us to now live a new life. A new life to be part of his restoration purposes on this earth. And it's only when that gospel message becomes so powerful and beautiful and attractive to you that you will begin to give up all these other idols. How many of us are Android users? Will you ever give up your phone for an iPhone? Yes. Whoa, okay. <laughs> I think... Uh, we're going to have a little brawl here afterward. Uh, by the way, I think that was an iPhone user who said that. So, right? There's no way you Android users will give up your phone for an iPhone. Why? Because you think iPhone sucks. But if a new, nice Android phone comes out, like Google gets its, its act together, <laughs> or Samsung lowers their price, right? or Huawei gets rid of their restriction on Google Apps or stuff like that, then you're like, I'm all in. You're not going to give up something that you have until you find something better. But once you find that better thing, you're, you're all, you're, you'll drop whatever on that. You're not going to give up your job until you find what? A better one. And I hope this is not true, but you're not going to give up your relationship until you find <laughs> a better person. But sadly, that's a lot how many of us operate. And, and this whole concept, I mean, I think this person named Tom, I mean, I've been sharing this quote with our leaders over the last month. And, but I, it's just been so powerful for me. It comes from this essay that a guy named Thomas Chalmers wrote. And he calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. This is what he says. And, and it's a little bit of uh, old English. He's a little bit older. And so if some of you uh, need some explanation, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to get some comments in between. It says, It is seldom that any of our tastes, desires, are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning. But what cannot be thus destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be, may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of his heart. What is he saying? He's saying that you cannot simply get rid of one of your desires. You cannot simply just get rid of one of your idols. If you long or you desire for something, you can't just sit there and then like, hmm, and then all of a sudden will it to go away. No, right? If you're hungry, you got to eat something. If you want good grades, if you want that job, you got to, something's got to satisfy that desire. You can't just get rid of it. And then this next section, he gives an example of a young boy. And he shows how this young boy, how this pattern works in this young boy. He says, it is thus that the boy ceases at length 
to be the slave of his appetite, like food and stuff like that. But it is because manlier taste has now brought it into subordination and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure, fun, toys, whatever. But it is because the idol of wealth has become the stronger and gotten the ascendancy and that even the love of money ceases to have the mastery over the heart of many a thriving citizen. But it is because drawn into the world of city politics, another affection has been wrought into his moral system and he is now lorded over by the love of power. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some one object or another, this is unconquerable. What is he saying? A young boy, he might love playing toys with his friends, video games, but eventually it gives way to what? Money. That's why we're constantly seeking after grades or this job, because we need financial security, which gives way to what? Money then... Once you get established and you're in your 30s, your 40s, and you start doing well for yourself, money's not enough. And then it, what does it turn to? It turns to power. It turns to influence. It turns to significance. What is he saying is that it's not because he got rid of the desire for fun or toys or pleasure. It's not because he got rid of the desire for money. It's because something else more attractive caught his eye. Are you guys following that? Does that make sense? And he's going to continue on these last two paragraphs. I'll just read it. He says, Its adhesion to that on which it has fastened the preference of its regards cannot willingly be overcome by the rending away of a simple separation. It could be done only by the application of something else to which it may feel the adhesion of a still stronger or more powerful preference, such as the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have something to lay hold of, and which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Your heart, it always needs something. It, always need, it will always gravitate, it will always cling on to something. And if you don't realize what that something is, then you're going to be constantly locked in the cycle. It says, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, and that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to cast the world away from it and thus to reduce itself to wilderness. The heart is not so constituted and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. End quote. Isn't that so true of us when we look at our lives? That our hearts were constantly clinging on to something new, something different, to satisfy our desires. And every time we try, and we try hard, I feel like our church, we're a, a, a generation of try-harder people. We try hard. We try, we try to do this good biblical thing. We try to love God. We try to go to life. We try to do LCG. We try to do our soul, pray, and all this kind of stuff, which is not bad. Those are good things, and I want to encourage you to keep doing it. But what ends up happening is that because it's just about us trying harder, that we've never allowed the gospel to replace or to expel the idol that's been going on in our hearts the whole time. Because we still long for that thing. We still long for that relation. We're still longing for that, desiring that. Our affections are directed toward that. And until we recognize that our affections are the root issue, the desires of our hearts, the idols that are going on in our lives, then we'll never allow the gospel to expel that. 
And the only way the gospel is going to expel that is if we see the gospel as beautiful and as powerful and as the greatest thing that we could ever want in this whole world, this whole universe. I forgot who uh, says that quote, but talking about if you want to teach men to build a ship, what do you got to teach them? You have to teach them not to do all the tools, not to do all the woodworking. You have to teach them to long for the sea. And I think the disappointing or the sad part of things in our church is that so many of us, that we're so focused on these other things that we've forgotten to long for Jesus Christ. We don't see him as eminently beautiful, powerful, awesome, good, loving, redeeming. We, we know, we can say those words, but we don't believe it. But that's the good news, right? Like We can't look to Jesus. We're not able to. We try hard and we fall short. But good news is that when Jonah is dead, when he's clogged with all these idols, what does God do? He still rescues him. He still rescues him. Isn't that amazing? That when we are at our lowest, we are so stuck with all these things in our hearts that God still reaches out to us. He still pursues us. He still chases after us. He still exposes us lovingly in a disciplined way so that we can realize just how amazing He is regardless of how broken that we are. And that's the awesome thing is when we realize that, when we see that happen, then something just begins to free in our hearts. It begins to flow. It begins to unclog. And it begins to just be like that wonderful pipe that just drains really cleanly. In verse 9 to 10, and this is the last two verses. It says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Once Jonah turns his love from other things back to God, remember, he's turning to these idols, but now he's focused. He's praying to the God's holy temple. He's looking to God. Then what happens? The expelling of his idols the release of it, the fact that God has saved Jonah. Jonah didn't deserve it. He should have died. He should have been hurled. He blamed God for all this stuff, but yet God still saved him. And now what does he realize? He says, now what comes out? Thanksgiving, a desire to give, to sacrifice, generosity, and salvation. Deliverance. Deliverance from what? From his idols so that he can have a relationship with God. It is the gospel that expels the idols in our hearts so that we could be reunited and restart our relationship with God. And and this is the amazing thing, is that Jonah, it wasn't only Jonah who could experience this. It's every single one of us today. Remember, we talked about like Adam and Eve, they were banished because they desired to be like God. Israelites, they were banished from the promised land. Why? Because... You know, they were pursuing after all these foreign gods. But it was Jesus. Jesus was different. He desired God. He loved the Father. He pursued after God. He didn't have those idols. But what did he do? He gave himself up for us in spite of the idols that we had. And he became the crucified Jesus who died because we were so sinful, because we were so broken, that he, 
He should not have been banished from God's presence. He should not have, he should have had a relationship with God. He should have been in God's presence. But what did he do? He came to earth. He left the throne of heaven to be with whom? Us, humans that didn't deserve anything. We're sinful to the core. We're constantly running away. He could have just left us here. But what did he choose to do? He, ch- he chose to be with us. And then even when he was walking on this earth, we still rejected him. And he still had every right to say, now that I'm walking on earth and I see all the stuff that you do, I'm going to punish you. I'm going I'm to totally wipe away every single one of you. But what did he do? He died for us. And even though he should have been with God, he should have been God's presence, what did God do to him? God banished him instead of us. That's the amazing exchange that God does. Matthew 25, verses 45 to 46, this is what it says. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that we would not have to be forsaken. Jesus was crucified so we would not have to be punished. Jesus was abandoned so that we could have a relationship with God. And it's because constantly we're going after all these things that we love and desire that are not of God. And it breaks God's heart so much that he believed the only thing that he could do to capture our hearts was to be the sacrifice, to glorify his son, to make his son look eminently beautiful, wonderful, more awesome than any other religion, any other idol, any other material thing that you think that can satisfy your life. Only Jesus will be able to satisfy you. For those of us who are longing for success and comfort, only Jesus can give us the real success and comfort that we long for. Those of us that want to be in control, only Jesus can be really in control of everything in our lives. For those of us who want to be approved by people or, or we want others to like us, you know that there's no way that you can get everyone in the world to like you. There will always be someone that criticizes you or doesn't like you, but only God is the only one who will always love you, regardless of what you do, who you are, what you say. And my hope and prayer is that we will understand that gospel is so amazing, so awesome, so powerful, that it will literally cause us to run away from every other idol in our lives. It will literally expel the idols out of our hearts so that we could return to Him and be restored in a relationship with Him. That's why the, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the, in the book of Ephesians, he says, and he's praying for the Ephesian Christians. He's saying, I'm praying that the love of God, that you would understand how long, how, how wide, how high, how deep is the love of God. That you'll see not just one aspect, you'll see how big it is, how wonderful, how magnificent it is. You'll be captured by it so that you will learn to follow Him. That's why the one thing is that God repeatedly expels idols in our hearts so that our relationship with Him can restart. I want to give us some next steps, and there's going to be um, one thing that, as the pastors and I, Pastor Seth and I were talking, we wanted just to focus this month, this whole series that we're talking about relationship with God, and every series after this that we do during this goal, is we want to give you one framework or one tool that will help you to develop in that relationship because this whole season is about discipleship, is about relationships. 
And I know many of us, we're still struggling, we're learning, and, and it's hard to live this out practically, but we really want this to be something that you can live out in your life groups, that you can do this on your own, that you can practice this with your LCG, with your accountability, whoever it is. You could teach us to your family. Do this with your spouse. Do this with your kids. And we really want to equip you practically so that all of us, we're like, yeah, I feel like I'm actually growing in my relationship with God. And so the tool that we want to give you is a tool that will help you a framework to learn to see how God is using the gospel to expel the idols that are in our hearts. And so we use the four R's of transformation, which will allow the gospel to expel and expose the idols in us. And we use this because we don't want to come up with a new tool. We know that there's a lot of acronyms in HMCC, and I'm sure that many of you have heard of this before. But we wanted to see it go deeper and really tease out what does it really mean to go through the four R's of transformation. For those of you who are hearing this for the first time, that's great. And we want to teach you so that you can actually go through it and see the gospel come alive in your life. So the first R is realize. Many of us know that we have to come to realization in order to change. If, we, if we're, we're unaware, then we're never going to change. We have to be aware. We have to realize where we're at in order to change. And so that question is going to be what behavior, emotion, pattern or sin do you realize is not consistent with the gospel? What are you doing? What's going on in your life? What's going on in your mind? How do you feel? Is it consistent with the gospel? Is your affection turned toward Jesus? If it's not, then there's something wrong. Sometimes we get really lost in it every day, but we realize that something's off, and that should be a cue to realize something's off. And that should start the whole process. The second one is repent. We have to repent. We have to come to a recognition that there's something wrong and it's deeply hidden in our hearts. If we just stay at the surface level, like what the other quote was saying earlier by Tim Keller, we can focus on money, but if we focus only on money, then we're going to miss all the other stuff underneath. So we have to repent and see how are these connected to a deeper idol in your heart that you need to repent of? How are those things, the behavior, the pattern, the sin, the emotions that you're feeling on the surface level, how is it connected down to a deeper idol in your heart that you need to repent of. And some of those examples I already gave today, power, comfort, approval, control. There are a lot of other ones, but you could just start with those four and see if any of those connect. Talk with your life group leaders. We've been training on this for the last like three weeks. And I believe that they're going to be equipped to be able to help you walk through and understand what idols are going down inside your heart. The third one is receive. Receive. After we repent, we realize, God, I can't do anything. There's nothing that I can do to get myself out of this pit, out of this hole. Then what do you need? You need this, the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, which is what? What truth of the gospel do you need to receive to expel the idol in your heart? Some of us, we do this like very, like, coarsely. And what I mean by coarsely, I'm like, when you're like, oh, yeah, I have this idol of approval, but Jesus died for me, and therefore I'm good. How many of us, we've done that before, and you're like, okay, Jesus died for me. Awesome. Praise the Lord. There's no power in that. But if you realize that Jesus, before he did anything, what? He was approved of by God. He said, God said, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And then you realize when Jesus went to the cross, who was he approved by? No one. No one. He was rejected by everyone. And it was the rejection that you fear so much because you want this approval from all these other people that Jesus takes that rejection upon himself 
the rejection of the world, he took upon the cross. And then by, because he was rejected on the cross, what happened? That he approves of you. He loves you. He cares for you. He's there for you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That's through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you begin to see the gospel in that light, then it becomes a whole different story. It's not like, oh, just, Jesus died for me. And you begin to receive, and something happens in our hearts that's like, whoa, the gospel is really powerful. And last thing is recommit. What must you do to turn away from the idol and recommit to living in gospel-centered obedience and faith? This is not something that you even have to do. If you've really experienced the gospel, this will just come. You'll be like, wow, God, you're so amazing and you're so awesome. I want to turn away from those things. And what must I do? What must I do? And what must I do to be saved? What must I do to experience that? Because you've already experienced it. There's nothing that you could have done. God has done it all for you. And then everything you would do is just a response to God, thank you. Comes out gratitude, comes out in obedience, comes out in faith to say, God, I want to do this now for you. Just come in your presence. We just honor you. And we recognize that there's no one like you. There's no one that speaks to our heart as much as you do. There's no one who dances over us like you do, even though we're unaware. There's no one who created the whole heavens, the mountains, the ocean, the seas, miracles in our lives every single day. You're the one who spotted us out. You knew us before we were in our mother's womb. And you spoke to us and you captured our hearts. Maybe it was a couple months ago, a couple years ago, but you did. And Lord, we owe our whole lives to you. And it was because of your son, Jesus Christ, that gave us that hope. God, we are indebted to you. We have nothing else besides you. Lord, would you create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in us. Let us then boast, proclaim, teach, tell of your deeds, your mighty works to all the nations. That's our heart's cry, Lord. Help us to do that. God, we thank you for this morning. We just trust in you. We know that we can't do this on our own. We know that we're, our tendency is to try hard, to either be legalist and moralist or to be just lax and selfish. Lord, we're praying that you would center our hearts on you. This week in Life Group, as we go over the four R's of transformation, as we practice this by ourselves with our LCGs, whatever it is, Lord, we're asking that you would help us and convict us so that not only can we experience the gospel for ourselves, but so many people who do not know their left hand from their right, they would know your good news, your gospel grace that would just totally overwhelm us and see this whole city come to know you in a powerful way. So we thank you, God. We trust in you. We praise you. We honor you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.